We're in the midst of a series of sermons where we're really talking about how we can share our personal faith in our public lives. And today we're talking about growing deeper. We're really talking about spiritual uh, maturity here. And I want to remind you that in your bulletins you're going to see a set of sermon notes in there. And really that's, those sermon notes are there every week just so you can hopefully take home something uh, from the sermon. You know, it's an outline. There are some terms that I wouldn't normally use that are in there. If you want to just take a pen or a pencil and jot down uh, those things there, they'll be there for you later. And hopefully if we write them down, we remember them. And hopefully God speaks to us somehow through that. So that's there for your benefit. Now, there's a lot of things that we can talk about when we're truly talking about uh, growing deeper in our faith. And, and that's something we do every week, right? Anytime that we come to church and we sing and we pray and we do all these different things, we're looking to grow deeper in our faith. We're looking to do something that helps us be a better follower of Jesus. So in a certain way, we, we talk about that all the time. But today we're talking about it in expressing our personal faith in public lives, and we really want to look at two dimensions of that. Okay, so the one is uh, trust and the other is love. And what do trust and love mean to us uh, in this uh, concept? And there's something that we have to admit to ourselves before we even get started here. We all love certainty. We love things to be black and white. We want to know the answers. We're not satisfied with things being left hanging out there and we're not sure about it. We want to know exactly how to interpret this piece of scripture and what it says. And, and we really want to know what God is like, right? And we really want to know what is God's will for my life and, and how do I live that out? We want certainty. And that's part of who we are. As humans, that's what we want. We want to know, okay? I don't want to have to wonder about it. I don't want to have to think about it. I don't have to ponder about it. I don't want to have to have faith in it. I want to know. Don't you want to know? I hear that from you all the time. You want to know. I, I talk about a lot of things here, you know, and sometimes I talk about things uh, that are uh, um, uh, conflicting. They're paradoxical. They're, they're dichotomies. We talk about these complex issues in the church all the time, and when I come and talk to you about it, I'll tell you about what these Christians think and what these Christians think and where the world is, and here's my opinion. You know, and it's a very complex issue, but no doubt I get out to the back and I'm shaking somebody's hand and you're like, that's all well and good, Pastor Tom. I appreciate that so much, but can you just tell me the answer? Can you just tell me what to believe, you know? Would you just tell me who to vote for? <laughs> no, you got to think about that yourself. That's, that's why I have that Wesleyan quadrilateral we talked about last week, right? Go to the scriptures, read the scriptures, and then you look at your tradition in the church and what it says, and then you take the personal experience of the Holy Spirit, and then you put your reason on top of that and you figure that out for yourself. We want certainty, okay? There's a challenge to it. You know, faith doesn't work that way. That's the problem. We want certainty. We also want faith, and we don't want to have to think and go through all this stuff. We just want the answers, all right? But these two things don't work that way. They don't necessarily go together. So sometimes we just want to be told what to believe. But that's the way we are. We want to know. Certainty does not necessarily fit in with faith. So here's what happened. We, we get to this place and we want to know and we get to this place where, well, I know what I know what I know and what that means is I'm right and that means you're wrong. And if I'm right and you're wrong, at the very least you're wrong, but if I take it far enough, you might actually be evil. <laughs> you see, how, see what happens here? This is what we do and we demand certainty in things. And here's what happens when we demand this uh, certainty. When we find ourselves in a place where we have to have the answer, 
and we just can't get that answer, and it's a complex issue. We, one of two things happen. First, we tend to oversimplify the issue. And what we take, we, we take that issue and we bring it and we dumb it down right to where we can get our arms around it. And they say, okay, now I've got it, you know. We do that all the time. We take these very complex issues. So that's the first thing we do. The other thing that we do is we just, we just polarize, we just divide over it. And we do this all the time. And there should be things happening, not only in our country, things that you're thinking of in your mind that are happening not only in our country, but our denomination and other places that, that uh, prove this thought, and it's what we do. And we find this in the Christian church all the time. We have a long history of, of doing this. We have a long history of finding an issue and then uh, dividing over it. You know, in the Christian faith, when you think about it, I, I started to study this week about Christian denominations, and I'm gonna give you some shocking numbers. From what I could find, the number of Christian denominations around the world is somewhere around 41,000. 41,000 Christian denominations. In this country, the best number I could find in this country is about 3,000, okay? Now, there's a lot of data out there. You know, they have these meta subgroups that there's 1,400 subgroups and all this, but th these are the numbers, okay? Now, here's the thing. 3,000 denominations in this country. Then you have a whole other 10,000 congregations that are non-denominational, and that means they can't find one other church to hook up with. We have a long history of taking this thing, this, this certainty of having the better answer, of knowing the truth, and then separating ourselves so we can experience that truth in our way. This is how we are. This is what we do. Faith and certainty. We tend to oversimplify, and then we divide. We do that all the time. I'll give you a couple examples. If you look at the body of Christ, the greater church, the church universal, uh, you're really looking at three subcategories here. So you've got the Roman Catholics, and then you've got the Orthodox, okay? And then you have the Protestants. That's by far the biggest parts here, these three groups. There's about 2.3 2 billion Christians in the world. Half of those call themselves Catholic. The country with the most Catholics is Brazil, 134 million Catholics in Brazil. That is Spain, France, and Italy all put together. They've got more uh, Roman Catholics in Brazil than those three countries, all right? So half of the uh, world population of Christians is Catholic. Then you've got about uh, 260 million are Orthodox, and you've got about 800 million that is one of the Protestant denominations. There's about 1% that's unaffiliated out there, but they're uh, kind of uh, nominal. So that's 2.3 billion uh, Christians all divided up. And we have really interesting ways in which we treat each other outside of these groups. I, I'll never forget, I'm gonna go back, it's been more than, it's been a long time, okay? I was back in seminary, and I was uh, glad to be participating in something that we called Interseminary Seminar. And what that was is of the six Eastern Pennsylvania seminaries across ecumenical divides, so it was Roman Catholic and Presbyterian and Moravian and Lutheran, Lutheran and Methodist, we all got together and we had this Interseminary Seminar where four students came from their seminary, representing their seminary, and participated with these other 20 students, okay? And at that time, I was at Eastern, and uh, there was a group from St. Charles de Borromeo, the Roman Catholic Seminary down on City Line Avenue. And uh, it was about the time that the Pope came out with this statement. He was clarifying the church's view of Protestants. And the words that he said weren't meant to get to the Protestants. They were, the, they were for Roman Catholic theologians in the hierarchy in the church, right? But here's what the, the, the Pope said. The clarifying words used for Protestants were, they were wounded Christians, defective in their faith. Churches 
should not technically be called churches because they do not accept apostolic succession, the authority of the Pope, or a certain way of understanding the Eucharist. Ouch. Now, you, you, you should have been in some of the conversations when you had four baby priests. Baby priests is what they call seminarians that aren't priests yet. They call them baby priests. I thought that was funny all by itself. And then you had 20 Protestant students, right? You should have seen some of the conversations we had. Those guys felt so bad. <laughs> they say, I wish he would never have said that, you know. They had to live it out. But that's funny. That's how we treat each other across these divides. And, and you know, it's, it's not just the way the Catholics talk about the Protestants. It's the way, I'll tell you right now, there are fundamentalist Christians in this country who would say about you because you're sitting in a Methodist church this morning that you are not authentically Christian and that you are lost. All right? We have these divides all the time. We talk about this in so many different ways. There are so many, yeah, and I'll tell you right now, I'm, I'm not gonna point anybody out, but there are those of you who have come to me and said, Pastor Tom, I love those parts of my family who are, who are Roman Catholic. Can you pray for them? I still want them to become Christians. <laughs> well, what are they now, you know? Uh, they receive the sacraments. They call Christ, Jesus Christ as Lord. They have the very same Apostles' Creed that we do. They go to church. They study the scriptures. They call them the Holy Spirit. What else do they got to do, you know? It's how we view things. It's how we put up these divides. And we say, well, this is the way you do it. If we don't do it this way, you are at least wrong, but very possibly you're evil. <laughs> that's how we do it. It's the most incredible thing. And you know something? I think about these things, and I think that's why Jesus prayed that high priestly prayer that we find in John 17. He's on the ground in the Garden of Gethsemane, and he's perspiring blood. And what does he pray? He prays, oh, Father, if you could just take this cup from me, right? But then what does he say? Let them be one as you and I are one. Why would he pray that? Because he knows how you are. <laughs> he knows how I am. We find little things, and we divide over it. We oversimplify it, and then we divide over it. We nitpick over these points of doctrines. We strain the gnats out, right, and then swallow a camel. That's what he said in Matthew, all right? John Wesley, founder of Methodism. Go back 250 years, and this is what John Wesley says. Would to God that all the party names and unscriptural phrases and forms which have divided the Christian world were forgot, and that we might all agree to sit down together as humble, loving disciples at the feet of our common master to hear his word, imbibe in his spirit, and to transcribe his life onto our own. John Wesley's talking about something. He's describing a capacity to be able to look at people with different theological, political, sociological views or points of ours, being able to look at those people and have the capacity to say, you might have some truth that I could learn from. And I might have some truth that you can learn from. But that requires humility and a willingness to listen. Of being able to look at somebody that you disagree with and say, you know what, we might disagree, but I still love you. Okay? It requires humility, grace, and a willingness to listen. The disciples were not immune from this. The disciples were not immune from this. What do we find them talking about so many times in those stories in the Gospels? They were talking about who was the greatest, right? And, and there they are. Actually, James and John sent their mom to go to bat for them with Jesus. And she goes to Jesus and says, Jesus, have you noticed James and John, my sons? You know? She goes, aren't they awesome? When you, when you come into your kingdom, you might just want one on your left and one on your right. You know? Your mom, really? 
And, and, and then, you know, they're at the, the night before uh, Jesus is uh, crucified on the cross, right? They're at the Last Supper, and Jesus knows what they're talking about at the other end of the table, and they're talking about, the disciples are saying, who's the greatest? Who does he love most? Who's at the very top of the heap here? And Jesus knows what they're talking about, and what he does is he gets up from the table, and he takes off his cloak, and he puts on a towel, and he goes over and gets the basin of water and a towel, you know, and he gets down in front of them, and he washes their feet. And he says, I tell you, the greatest among you is the servant. Folks, that is growing deeper. So when we get to that point where we think uh, God loves us and we're one of the greatest in his kingdom, I don't think you ever want to think that unless you find yourself on your knees washing somebody's feet. That's how we grow deeper. You know, this, this scripture that we heard today, it's funny, the disciples got so emboldened by this in this scripture, they actually come and ask him, Jesus, who is the greatest in the kingdom of God? And what does he do? He grabs that little child and he pulls that little child, and I can just see him setting this child right in the middle of them, you know, and he says, he says, this is what greatness looks like in the kingdom of God. Unless you become like this child, you shall never enter the kingdom of God, and you are looking at the greatest in the kingdom right now. And here's what I want to tell you about that child. That child had no idea about the various theories of atonement. That child had never attended a systematic theology course, had not read the scriptures forward and backward and knew how to interpret all of them, but that child had one thing, trust. That child had trust. That's the thing about the child. They didn't care about apostolic succession, they just trusted. Here's an exercise for you. Read through the Gospels sometime with a lens where you're just looking for the people that Jesus praises and commends. If you just go through the Gospels and you just look for those people that Jesus lifted up, he didn't lift up the ones who had memorized Scripture. He didn't lift up the ones who had wonderful theologies. He lifted up the ones who, out of all the circumstances, still trusted. He praised them. He praised them for their trust. Jesus praises people who trust. Okay, so in the Christian faith, we have the different denominations, and we divide ourselves along lines of theology and doctrine and other things, and, and these are some of the divides, but there's one divide that is actually stronger in the Christian faith than actually these, and I think that is between the conservatives and the liberals. Oh my gosh, you said it in church. <laughs> that is the divide between the conservatives and the liberals. And, and here's what we find out when we start talking about these things. You look at the conservatives and, and the liberals, and you know there's, con, there's conservative United Methodists and conservative Catholics who have more in common than the conservative United Methodists do with their own liberal United Methodist brethren. And there's liberal United Methodists who have more in common with liberal Catholics than they do with their own conservative United Methodist brethren. It's just the way it is. We divide ourselves along these lines. And it, we think that this is some division that's some 20th century phenomenon. No. This is a division that happened at the very earliest point. As soon as people started to be disciples of Christ and believe in Jesus, they, they were divided along these lines. I'll tell you this. At the very beginning, if you go back and you look at, uh, if you look at the first half of Romans, the third chapter of Philippians, all of Galatians, certainly places in Acts and, and probably James. If you read those, you will see 
the apostles are addressing these exact concerns, the liberals and conservatives. They weren't called liberals and conservatives. They were called legalists and libertines. They were two different groups, all right? And they believed different things. And, and here's what happens. There were these people who came along, you know, um, who said, you know, what do we have to do to be a disciple of Christ and to be a Christian? And the people stood up and they said, well, here's what you have to do. You have to follow all 613 laws in the Old Testament, and if you're a man, you need to be circumcised, then you can follow Christ and be a Christian. And they're like, what? <laughs> and then people came along and said, wait a second, we don't have to do that. No, you don't have to do that. Christ fulfilled that old covenant. That, that bill is paid in full. We don't have to do that anymore. He set us free from the law. We are able to go out and live through grace and love. And I'll tell you what, we are so free. If it feels good, it must be good. Go ahead and do it. We are not connected to any of that stuff. So then where did the apostles come down on this? Were they libertines or were they legalists? They weren't either. When you read Paul and the apostles and they're addressing these things, Paul comes along and he says, no, you don't need to be circumcised. And guess what? You have been set free from the law. That's true. Through grace and the love of Christ, we've been set free from that. But you know something? It's the law that tells us about the love of God and how we're supposed to live the life that is, is pertinent to God's will in our lives and how we're supposed to do it. So we find Paul. He's not libertine or legalist. He's right in the middle. And through all of his letters, through all his work, he walks that fine line right down the middle, bringing the best of both sides and saying, come back, come back. He does that all the time, finding truth on both sides of the issues and, and doing that. And you know something? Um, it didn't end there with just the uh, legalist and the, and the libertines. By the time we get to the late 19th, early 20th century, it had turned into the modernists and the fundamentalists. You know, And this shapes much of the 20 and 21st century faith that we have today. What was happening in the seminaries in uh, Europe the seminaries in Europe were looking very closely at Scripture, and they looked at Scripture and said, do you really think God is the kind of God that would tell Moses to go down off the mountain and, and kill 3,000 of his friends and family? That does not match up with this over here. So what they did is they kept studying this, and they got to a place where they realized, you know, this Bible, it's really just a library of books. It's a library of books written by humans as a reflection of what God is like. All right? So really, when you find something that you don't agree with, you know, you can kind of look at it and kind of work it out, but um, that's just what it is. It's somebody else's view, all right? So that's, we've been set free from all of that. Well, you can imagine how that um, really set off, especially some of the American Christians back at the turn of the century. They were like, absolutely not. Now remember, think of this. We talked last week about how the pendulum swings, how it swings over here, and for every reaction, there's an op uh, opposite equal reaction. So those fundamentalists just swing that ball the whole way back over here, and they say, no, that is not what the Bible says. The God uh, wrote the Bible. It was his divine intervention in those human lives. They were really secretaries. They were transcribing what God said, and every word, every lever, every jot and tittle, every piece of that is from God, and it's the truth, and you have to live by it. And the other side was like, no, it's not. No, well, how do you do this? What about, the, you know, they, they had all these reasons. We've been set free. We don't have to do that. Over here, no, you have to live by it. Okay, and this, and this led to a lot of different things, and here's what happens, you know. Over here on this side, you get to a point where uh, the, the uh, uh, one side would say, well, yeah, what about this? Science shows something else, and these fundamentalists would say, well, anytime that the Bible disagrees with science, the Bible's right. Anytime the Bible disagrees with the historical calendar, the Bible's right, the historians are wrong. Anytime the Bible says there's a discrepancy in the Bible, well, we just don't understand the mystery of it, but the Bible's right. 
And then it would go down these things. You end up with this real loosey-goosey view of the Bible over here and over here. If you're not, if you're not per, uh, prescribing to every little law, you're in trouble. And this led down to other things. It led down to women in church, right, and other issues. People over here were saying, well, women are co-created with uh, all of us. They're, they're part of God's creation. They need to be in church and speaking and, and leadership and over here and saying, no, the Bible's, they can't even be ushers in our church because if they are in our church, they'd have to speak to be ushers. You know, and you get down on these fine lines, so it bled out into all these other pieces. And you know, for me and millions of other Christians, I get to a point and I say, is it really just one or the other? <laughs> is it really just one way over here or one way over here? No, there's a place in the middle where you can take the best truth from both sides and you can put it in the middle and live your life there. I think that's what we learn from the divisiveness and, and the things that we do here. You know, trying to follow Jesus and follow Paul and, and do these things. And it really comes down to the, the evangelicals and the social gospels. There would be people saying over here the most important part of the church is, is being saved and saving others and your own personal relationship with Christ. And people over here would say, no, actually the most important thing in the church is being out on the streets and, and doing uh, acts of justice and mercy. And then there's millions of Christians say, does it have to be either or, or can we bring it together? Because I'll tell you right now, if you've got all this church over here, you have an imbalanced faith. If it's just about being evangelical. If you're over here and it's just about helping your neighbor, you have an imbalanced faith. You've got to be somewhere in the middle and have both parts of that gospel. All right? So these are the battles that we get into in the church. And the truth is, you know, we're people trying to make our, our way through this life. And we have to say there really can't just be those two choices. <laughs> it just doesn't work. All right? It, it, it's not there just to be, you know, this liberal or this conservative and go through life that way. We need the holiness that comes through our own personal uh, faith in Jesus Christ. We need the action that comes through the social gospel. Because here's what happens. If we're going to go out and we're going to do this work, how are we ever supposed to go and change the world if we don't have the power that comes through our personal relationship with Jesus Christ? We'll never get anything done. But we're not just going to stay in the church. We're going to take that power and we're going to go out and use it. These things are integral. They're pieces of the same puzzle that need to go together, and without that, we're imbalanced. So what we have to get to is something that's called a conjunctive faith. And conjunctive faith is something that's able to take these things that are on both sides, that are supposed to take these dichotomies, these opposite trends, and bring them together with a little bit of mystery and grace and willingness to, to serve and be humble and living out that life. And conjunctive faith actually comes from a book that was written by James Fowler. James Fowler wrote a very important book back in the 1980s, and this is it right here, I have it. It's called Stages of Faith, The Psychology of Human Development and the Quest for Meaning. Now this is a textbook, it's hard to read. But what James Fowler does as a psychologist and a theologian, he brings these two things together and he says there's actually six stages of faith that we can identify. And he says, these things, our human development, our faith, are very closely uh, related together. And he says, we first start out with this stage of one-two faith. This is the stage of the faith of a child, right? And what, what he found in the faith of a child is a, is a child really can't differentiate God from other things. God to a child is like uh, the Easter Bunny or Santa Claus. Uh, to a child, God is a person who is somewhere who can be touched. Uh, God is related to the stories that they learn in Sunday school and the things they hear their parents saying to them. 
but they can't differentiate from God that we know in our mature faith to a God that's much different from the tooth fairy, okay? And, and here's what's really interesting. It's happened to me in pretty much every church I've been in. It happened to me a couple of years ago here. I come out after, after uh, worship, and I get out to the back, and there's a lady standing there. I'm not going to use names. But she's standing there, and she's got her little, little three-, four-year-old boy, and they come over, and he's got this big smile on his face, and I'm talking to him and everything, and she, she looks down at him, looks up at me, and, and he says, uh, he thinks you're God. <laughs> And, you know, just about that time, the lightning, I'm waiting, you know, I'm waiting to be struck down. Well, we got to clarify this a little bit. But, you know, to a child, to a little child, God is a, a person who stands up in front of people and talks about faith things in the church and wears a robe. Because they can't differentiate that. That's those early stages. That's stage one and two faith. And that's just the way it is. There's nothing wrong with it. They go by what their parents and their Sunday school teachers tell them, and they don't really differentiate. Now, stage three, that happens older elementary school Preteens, okay, and what happens here, the peer group becomes very, very important. So once they get to this late elementary preteen stage and the kids are, are out with other friends, if they're with friends who don't have a God or believe in God, they tend to adapt that faith. They tend to move in that direction because they're, they're becoming little copycats, you know, and they don't mean to. It's just part of our psychology. It's what we do. We start to recognize ourselves as reflected by other people. That becomes our identity. Now, if your kid is in those ages and they're over here and they're in the youth group or they're with people who believe and, and do that, uh, believe in God, they tend to move in that direction. That's why youth director or youth pastor is so important in the church, and we have a great one here. You guys tell me all the time how great Matt is because he displays and he, he talks about a wonderful faith. Because our kids, and there's many of us here who are in youth groups, and they'll say, yeah, I, my, my youth pastor had a really, really uh, important effect on me, you know, in my faith. Because at that age, kids are adapting. They're moving into that faith of others. Now, stage four, stage four is when we finally begin to ask questions of our, our, of our faith. We start to wrestle with it. You know, some, um, some more mature Christians, I could have around 16, 17, but for most of us, it was 18 to 22. It's when we went off to college. We're, at that point, we're trying to differentiate ourselves from our parents. Oh, my parents are faithful people, not me, you know. And then we separate ourselves from the faith during this period of time where we're figuring it out. And we, we start asking ourselves questions. Do I believe that? Is that true? Does that really work out? How does that happen? All these stories, are they, are they really what uh, God is all about? So we find ourselves sorting it out and rejecting and so forth. Now, Fowler says that some people never leave stage three. Some people have this trusting, loving faith that they've gotten from their parents and they're just, they accept it and they're trusting and they live for that the rest of their lives. But he says a lot of people enter into this stage four dilemma where they have to question their faith. And he, he said, if you don't, if it doesn't happen late teens, early 20s, it happens in midlife crisis. When you hit 40, you start asking those questions. Okay, and, and, and he does say that it happens almost certainly when somebody uh, finds tragedy in their lives. Because what happens is you're living this faith, and this faith tells you that if I go to church, I say my prayers, I, I tithe to the church, and I read the scriptures, I, I pray, I do all these things, God's going to take care of me. But it doesn't always work out that way. So you get to this place where you have to question your faith, and you have to think about these things. And you know, we leave behind those simplistic ways. This is growing deeper. It's growing deeper. And then ultimately what we get to head towards is stage five or, or stage six. Now, Fowler says that most of us will never reach uh, stage six in this life. But my hope for me and my hope for all of you is that we do firmly find ourselves in, in stage five. And stage five, five is what I started with, conjunctive faith. 
Stage five is this conjunctive faith where we're able to bring lots of complex issues together. We're able to deal with uh, paradox. We're able to have a wide, broad faith that can encompass a lot of things, you know. It's no longer oversimplistic. We don't seek to divide over it. We're able to deal with the complexity and hold things together. We're able to take antithetical opposites and draw them in and have that be our faith. Okay? And there's truth here. There's truth that comes from both sides. We look at the hard issues and we, we say, these two things don't have to be mutually exclusive. We can bring them together and find the parts that, that we believe in. And this takes definitely, this stage five takes a certain measure of humility and a whole lot of grace. And here's what I experienced with those of you who are in stage five. You say things like, you know, the more I know, the less I really think I know. <laughs> you, you say things like, you know, I'm really figuring out that I am so small and God is so big. I'm really figuring out that what I've got going up in here doesn't even match what God has on this planet in this, in this universe. This is stage five. It's being able to not be certain about everything and not have the answer. It's being able to deal with some mystery in your faith. It's a great place to be. That's what stage five begins to look like. It's a picture of living with uncertainty, having grace and humility and a capacity to, to just allow mystery to affect you. Okay, stage six. Stage six is this place. When you think of stage six, think of Mother Teresa. Very few of us ever get to the place that we wholly empty ourselves of anything worldly and all we are is we're a being that loves God and loves other people. It's not about us anymore. We've emptied all that. And we've, it's, a, it's a different plane. It's a different place. John Wesley talked about that too. He called that sanctification. And we've talked about that in the past. Sounds like a, a wonderful, wonderful place to be. Our primary motivation is loving God and loving other people. And we come to become last. Not very many people reach that in this life, but that's what we strive for. And that's what really led, led, led us to our first uh, reading today, that reading from 1 Corinthians that we all love so much. You know, we read um, Corinthians and we get to 1 Corinthians 13. I want you to understand something today. Paul did not write that for your weddings. <laughs> all right? He wrote it because he was talking to a, d a divided church that was a mess. And he wrote it as instructions on how Christians are supposed to live. That's what 1 Corinthians 13 is. The division that was in this church was this. He's got these people in this church. He's got these charismatics over here. They're speaking in tongues and they're doing all this stuff. And over here he's got these people. No, no. We're going to go out and we're going to sacrifice our bodies for other people. We're just going to uh, live for justice and mercy. And this is what it's all about. So he had these people over here. Uh, legalists and libertines, right? He had these people over here and these people over here and Paul comes to him and said, you guys are looking down at them like they're unworthy and they don't count. You guys are looking at them like they don't, they don't, uh, they're not Christians and all this. And he says, you guys are both wrong. You need to take the right, the truth from both sides and bring it together. And that's what he's talking about here. So when he says those words, you know, if I speak in tongues of mortals and of angels but do not have love, I'm just a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have prophetic power, powers and understand all the mysteries and all the knowledge, and if all I have all the faith so as to remove mountains but do not have love, I'm nothing. If I give away everything and if I hand my body over that I may boast but do not have love, I gain nothing. Paul's describing what the Christian life is supposed to look like. And at this point, I want to suggest something. Before I go on to this next part, here's what I want to suggest to you. This next verse is a 
It's a personal assessment for you and me. It's a personal assessment to see how we're doing on this journey. It's a spiritual assessment to us to say, hmm, am I getting it or not? Because Paul was saying, this is what the life of the Christian is meant to look like. So here's what I want you to do. As I read these next few verses, anytime I say the word love is, I want you to put your first name in there. Okay, so it's going to be Marge is, or Bill is, or Doug is, or, or Sherry is. So I'll be thinking when I read this, I'm going to be thinking Tom is, okay? All right, let, let's try this. And the question you're asking yourself is, how deep have I grown in my faith? Love is patient. Love is kind. Love is not envious. Love is not boastful. Love is not arrogant. Love is not rude. Love does not insist on its own way. Love is not irritable. Love is not resentful. Love does not rejoice in wrongdoing. Love rejoices in the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, and endures all things. How'd you do? We all have some work to do, don't we? I know I do. I know I do. You know, the Apostle Paul ends that with those words, you know, and now faith, hope, and love abide. These three, and the greatest of these is love. That's 1 Corinthians 13. Go back and take that test every once in a while. Trusting with a childlike faith and growing deeper in love of God and neighbor. Folks, that's, that's how we grow deeper in a personal faith that it exhibits itself well in the public sphere. Let's pray.